Well, a warm good morning to you today, wherever you are. It is a delight to be gathered here in this place in worship, wherever you are in that circle at home or in one of our campuses, it, you are special to us, and I am grateful for the opportunity to be reflecting with you today. As we prepare to think together on this extraordinary historic belief system of our church, I want to invite you to listen to these words as they come to us from the writings of the Apostle Peter long ago. Finally, all of you be like-minded, writes Peter. Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, amidst a, uh, an often noisy and controversial world, amidst a world in which so often evil is repaid paid with evil. We thank you for this extraordinary reminder that your way is different from human ways and your way is so good. As we think together upon the history of your work in human lives, help us to remember for ourselves personally the reason for the hope that we have and to find in the very words of your historic church affirmations of faith that will be our light and our strength as they draw us to focus upon you wherever we are. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The story is told of a prisoner of war who found himself confined to a solitary cell by his enemies. He was deprived of adequate food and water over many days. He was not allowed to sleep for more than a few moments at a time. He was frequently taken out of his cell only for the purpose of being interrogated and beaten severely again and again. 
His captors told him that his country had forsaken him, that his family had forgotten him, that his friends no longer remembered him, that he was about to die, so he might as well just give up the secrets that he was guarding on behalf of people who didn't care. The conditions were so very brutal that he broke down emotionally in many ways. He certainly did so physically. He became exhausted. He got delirious. He was tempted to accept the things that his enemies were saying, but every morning and every night and as many times through the day as he possibly could, he repeated these words to himself. My country is worth protecting. My family still loves me. The sun is going to come up again tomorrow. There is hope. This I believe. And on the strength of those affirmations, he managed to keep going. He managed to stay sane until the day that he was finally rescued. One night long ago, I was driving back uh, to my college in New Haven from a visit I had made out of state And I found myself hopelessly lost in the middle of the Connecticut countryside. Uh, I knew that if I could head east, that I would probably run into the interstate, and from there I'd be okay and be able to get back home. The problem was I had absolutely no idea which way was east. These were the days before GPS. I was driving in my old beater Chevy Chevette. I didn't have a map. I didn't have a compass. I didn't have a cell phone. They hadn't been invented yet. And so in desperation, I pulled over and I figured that I would just flag down another motorist going by and I would ask for directions. Only no motorist came. As I stood by the side of this uh, rural road, I looked up into the dark night sky and I prayed one of those prayers of desperation all of us have from time to time. God, help me. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to find my way home. And as I looked up into the night sky, I noticed over there the unmistakable outline of the constellation Orion. The famous hunter with the three bright stars that mark out his belt. And I thought to myself, you know, I've seen that constellation just this past week. It was right there over the tower of the dormitory just to the east of where I sleep at night. And it occurred to me that maybe if I just found roads that were pointed towards those stars, I would find my way to the interstate and by the light of those stars I found my way indeed to Route 95 and I made my way home. Why do I tell you these particular stories you may be wondering? Well it's because I want to start a conversation with you today about some affirmations that are worth repeating should you ever find yourself in some solitary situation where you are beaten up by some enemy or should you ever find yourself in the place where even being a Christian is as dangerous 
and as disadvantaged in the eyes of the world as it was in the first century. It's also because I want to invite you to think with me about a whole constellation of convictions, as it were, that can be the bright stars by which you set your course in life when you feel lost or when the darkness seems to be closing in in some part of your journey. About 400 years after the birth of Jesus, a man named Rufinus of Aquileia began propagating an interesting story. Rufinus suggested that sometime after the day of Pentecost, the apostles of Jesus held an historic meeting. Jesus had said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. According to Rufinus and this tradition, after the Holy Spirit did indeed come upon the early disciples and fill them with power, the apostles huddled up and said, in effect, okay, we're going to do what Jesus said now. We're going to take this gospel message out into the world, to the very ends of the earth, so let's just make sure we're all very clear on what the message is, on what it is we're going to share. What are the essential truths that we want to take with us and distribute as broadly as we possibly can? If any of us gets thrown into prison, what are the beliefs that we're going to hold on to? If any of us ever gets disoriented or lost in the darkness of these various cultures that we may enter into, what are the convictions? What are the key convictions that will guide us on our way home? As Rufinus imagined it, the disciples then began to group source a set of the most important ideas they had picked up on their journeying with Jesus. Perhaps someone said, well, we'll definitely want to focus on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, after all, didn't the Master say to us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I think we should make sure that we talk to people about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, maybe that is a three-point outline for the whole testimony of faith that we should take out from here. Maybe somebody else said, well, let's, let's not forget also how Jesus was born of a virgin. I mean, that just doesn't happen every day. It's one of the fulfillments of prophecy in Jesus' life, and it's a sign that he was someone out of the ordinary. Maybe another disciple remarked, I think we should remember how Christ suffered. You remember what happened to him that night under Pontius Pilate and how he was crucified and dead and buried. I think people need to know how Jesus went to hell for them. He loved them that much. For me, another apostle may have observed, it's it's all about the resurrection It's all about the life everlasting that he has made possible for us. Oh, that's good, I imagine Peter saying. That's really good, but I'll never forget. Personally, I'll never forget what he said about the forgiveness of sins and how he forgave my sin and how he called us to 
to build this worldwide communion that is the church on the rock of the confession that he is Lord. We need to talk about that too. I could hear him saying. Truthfully, we, we don't really know if a meeting like that ever took place. If a conversation like I've just described ever unfolded, we don't really know that could all be just the stuff of legend. But what we do know is that by about the year 1000 or 100 AD, a mere 60 years from the time that Jesus was crucified, we do know that these ideas I've just described and more had come together in the form of a confession of faith that people who were going to be baptized into the church in Rome would be asked to affirm before they became part of the church. We do know that in the years to come, this very set of beliefs, this basic body of belief, would spread out through churches everywhere. And by the year 390, the statement would be called the Apostles' Creed. The word creed, as you probably know, comes from the Latin word credo, which means this, I believe. Different churches might uh, tweak slightly the particular phrases or statements in the Apostles' Creed, but the big ideas of that statement of faith would remain the same across time and space and across cultures for some 2,000 years. When you recite the Apostles' Creed, you are invoking one of the oldest creedal formulas known to man. In these coming weeks, we're going to recite that creed even more. We're going to study the meaning of this ancient statement of faith and try and revivify it for ourselves. For some of you, this is gonna be a warm reminder of what you already know. For others of us, this is going to become a new adventure. We're going to gain insights into the meaning of the Christian message and life that we've never had before. And I hope you'll find this a wonderful journey. As we go along this particular path, we're going to take the statements of the Apostles' Creed a little bit out of the order that you are normally accustomed to hearing it in order to align these statements with some of the great celebrations and the holidays of this season. And you will see that makes sense of them even more. Today, for example, we're going to examine not the first statement in the Apostles' Creed. Ironically, we're going to save that one for the very last week of this series because sometimes the first will be last, says Jesus. But we're gonna talk this morning about the second major idea of the creed. I, I, actually, the center of the creed, importantly, and it is the line that goes, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, our Lord. When Christians say, I believe in something, they are making a statement that is enormously important and important to understand. In our world today, I know the word belief gets thrown around a lot. 
Uh, People speak of believing in or uh, believing all kinds of things. They may say, I believe in going to church when actually they don't go all that often. They think others, it's a good idea to believe in uh, church and going to church. They may say, I believe in democracy when they don't actually get around to voting in every election or get personally involved in enacting, enacting meaningful political change. They may say, I believe in climate change or I believe in the rule of law, but do very little in response to that. Belief in this sense has become in our time often mainly an intellectual concept. It's a good idea. It's something that I aspire to but it's not necessarily something that reorganizes my life. Not necessarily something that changes me in a deep and personal way. You're probably familiar with the story I've told here before of the man who found himself at the edge of Niagara Falls watching a high wire artist, a daredevil, crossing over the falls on a thin wire, pushing a wheelbarrow. He was amazed by him, and when the man got to his side, he says, you're awesome, and the man said, you really believe in me? He said, oh yes, I absolutely do. I totally believe in you. Well then, said the high wire artist, then please just step into the wheelbarrow. When the early Christians said, I believe in the various things they articulate in the creed, They were not just repeating pious words. They were not just voicing an intellectual concept. They were not just talking about a vague aspiration. They were describing the wheelbarrows they had climbed into. In fact, the Greek words for believe in, uh, often found in the New Testament, are the Greek words uh, pistuo ice, which literally means believe into. It's not just an abstraction, it's an activity, this kind of belief. The affirmations that the Apostles' Creed articulates are realities that faithful Christians through the ages stepped into and invited other people to step into, to let their lives be directed by. They are verities that they staked their life on and adapted their lives to. And so when you and I get stuck in some prison or get lost in some darkness, these are truths that we as Christians hold on to. These convictions are the bright stars, in a sense, that guide us towards our ultimate home. Each of us, I suppose, comes to appreciate the importance of having such truths in our lives in our own way. I don't know how it might be for you. I know I had an experience the weekend after Easter that reminded me of this important uh, thing to have such truths in our lives. And and interestingly enough, it was through going on a golfing holiday. Uh, My best friend, uh, best man in our wedding, turned 60 years old. And he pulled a few of us together uh, to spend a few days with him at the Pinehurst Golf Community in North Carolina. I'd never been there before. It's sort of the Disney world of golf in a sense. And one of the highlights of that experience was going to the famous clubhouse there and seeing an extraordinary display honoring and commemorating uh, a man named Payne Stewart. 
If you don't follow golf, you may not know who Payne Stewart was, but I will tell you that he was one of the most beloved uh, players in uh, PGA Tour history. Uh, Stewart was regarded as an immensely warm, kind, and uh, dignified man. He tragically died in a plane crash just one month after helping the American team win the Ryder Cup and just four months after he won his second U.S. Open right there at Pinehurst. Payne Stewart was just 42 when he died. In the last round of that particular U.S. Open, Stewart brilliantly dropped a 15-foot putt on the very final hole to edge out a young Phil Mickelson to win the tournament by one stroke. Mickelson might have been a little bit distracted at the time as he'd gotten the news that his wife was just around the corner from delivering their first baby. One of the most famous pictures in golf captures the moment when Stewart cups the face of Phil Mickelson who's quite disheartened at losing the tournament and puts everything into proper focus for Mickelson. It was a credo, a credo moment in the life of, of, of this man's confusion. Phil Payne said, there's nothing like being a father. Don't take this loss too seriously. You've won in the most important sense. There's nothing like being a father. This, I believe, there was another moment, however, that no camera managed to capture. A few weeks after that victory at Pinehurst, a number of Payne Stewart's friends gathered together with the champion. And they held a great big party to relive the final moments of the tournament. They showed the videotape of those final holes that Payne had not yet seen himself. He was watching for the very first time. And as he saw these images of, of him sinking that final putt and then of giving glory to God for his grace in his life, Stuart was overwhelmed with emotion. And, and at that particular party was present um, Payne Stewart's pastor, a man by the name of J.B. Collingsworth, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orlando. And he saw Payne walking away from the group, trying to hide the emotion that was welling up inside of him. Collingsworth recalls and says, I, I put my arm around him and, and I said, Payne, I just want you to know that I appreciate what God's doing with your heart. And Stuart looked at me as hard as he could, tears now streaming down his face. And he said, JB, I'm not going to be a Bible thumper. I'm not going to stand up on some stump. But I want everybody to know it's Jesus. It's Jesus who's important. It's Jesus who's my hope. It's Jesus who is my strength. Effectively, this I believe. This is the ultimate focus for everyone 
who calls themselves a believer in the Christian tradition. This is the core of the Apostles' Creed itself, this statement, I believe in Jesus Christ. People will often say, I became a Christian the day I invited Jesus Christ into my life. Raise your hand if you ever heard somebody say something like that. Yeah. And I understand that. And I believe in that. And I've done that for myself. And I want to encourage you, if you've not done it, to ask Jesus to come in. Jesus once said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. I will come in and share life with them and they with me. But you know, if you hear nothing else that I'm gonna say here today, please hear this part. As important as it is to invite Jesus to come into our life, it's even more important for us to step in to his life, to get into the wheelbarrow of Jesus' life. Our lives are often pretty messed up. (laughs) His life is amazing and beautiful and good. And, and, and the, the worth of putting ourselves into his life is also suggested in these ancient words from the creed. The very word Jesus tells us that the one who we are following, the one who we are seeking to step into, understands human life. In fact, the word Jesus is an extraordinarily common word. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Joshua. It was one of the most common names in ancient Israeli society. It was the equivalent of Joe in American society. Uh, To say that we were following Jesus was to say we're following somebody who understands regular life. In fact, the apostles were amazed that the infinite almighty God had chosen to come and meet us as a regular Joe. But we follow Jesus who is also the Christ. And they went out of their way to make sure that he was called Jesus Christ. People sometimes think that Christ is Jesus' last name. But it's actually his job description. The word Christ means anointed one in the Greek. In the Hebrew, it it means Messiah. Uh, And in either case, comes down to the idea that he's our savior, that Jesus is our savior. We believe that Jesus is the savior that this world needs from sin, that Jesus is the savior that this world needs from evil, that Jesus is the savior that this world needs from the death that oppresses us. And if ever there was a moment when we could look around and see how sin and evil and death and division and and, and conflict and confusion and darkness are still problems in human life from which we need a savior, now I submit to you is such a time. How is Jesus able to be that savior? We may wonder. Well, the answer is because Jesus is God's only begotten son, the creed reminds us. Now, sometimes we speak about people being the sons and the daughters of God. And in a sense, 
Every human being is a child of God. The Bible teaches that red or yellow, black or white, each of us is made in the image and the likeness of God and we are precious, therefore, in God's sight. But Jesus Christ is a being of an altogether higher order. Uh, He is the one and only son who was begotten, not made. This means that he doesn't just possess a certain likeness to God as you and I do. It means that he is of the same substance as God, as you and I are not. The son is not a mere creature, therefore. He is the creator himself and therefore is someone who actually has the power to save us. Jesus went out of his way to tell us that himself in his own life. His, among his last words to those apostles were, be, were uh, 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 all authority and power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Trust that I have the power to bring people the life they want, the life they need. I have the power to be the savior that you need. This salvation that Jesus proclaims, this power for salvation, ultimately depends upon whether or not we are willing to make him our Lord. This is the final affirmation of this part of the Apostles' Creed, that he is not just Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son, but also our Lord. In the first century, where the apostles lived, to make a statement that Jesus was Lord was an extremely dangerous act. It was an almost revolutionary kind of act. You could get crucified for saying that, and many people did. You see, every single year, every citizen of the Roman Empire was required to walk past the equivalent of of a ceremonial fire pit and to take a pinch of incense and to sprinkle it on the fire and to say these words, Caesar est Kyrios. Caesar est Kyrios, which in the Greek means Caesar is Lord. And Kyrios actually means master. Uh, Lordship in the sense of a master. The Roman Caesars imposed their mastery. They imposed their lordship upon their citizens and subjects, often by coercion. Not so with the king of kings and the lord of lords. This is not the way he becomes our lord. Though he was infinitely worthy of our allegiance, though he actually had far more authority than any earthly Caesar ever has or ever will, Jesus never forces anybody to acknowledge him as Lord. To paraphrase Payne Stewart here, Jesus was not a Bible thumper who pounded people with the requirement to follow him or to do what he said. He did not stand up on some stump demanding that people look at him and praise him. No, no, Jesus invited people to confess him as Lord, to make him their Lord. Go home and read the Gospels afresh for yourself. 
watch the, um, the new uh, television series, The Chosen, uh, on Amazon Prime or on VidAngel, and you will see the kind of Lord that Jesus is. Jesus is the servant God. Jesus is the Jehovah Joe. Jesus is the meek and mild and magnificent and majestic God. Jesus is somebody that you choose to make your Lord because he is just so good and so wise and so wondrously worthy of our utter devotion and we want to step into his life and let him guide our lives so that we might become more like him. I hope you have invited him and stepped toward him in that way or will do so today. Letting Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, be our Lord, saves us from our sin, saves us from ourselves, saves us from all of the petty Caesars of this world who might otherwise put their knee on our neck or seduce us into following their empty pleasures and promises. And this is not just a personal statement when one says Jesus is Lord. When the apostles said Christ is Lord, they were thinking much bigger than a personal confession of faith. They were thinking much larger than an individual sense of need. They were acknowledging that Jesus is the great sovereign over history itself. That Jesus is the hope of every single civilization that he is the power and the presence that we should turn to when all else has failed us and even when we think other things can deliver we must turn to him when we're imprisoned in some cell when we're lost in the darkness it is to Jesus Christ the only begotten son of God our Lord that we turn we put our trust in him Credo, we say, this I believe. And I want to invite you to make that affirmation right now with me. I want to welcome you to stand up where you are and to join your voices in affirming this ancient belief system of the Church of Jesus Christ once again. Would you say with me, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life of everlasting. Amen. Amen.